Exodus chapter 30. We're going to look at 30 and 31. I want to start by reading the last uh, three verses of chapter 31, and then we'll pray, and then we'll get into it together. Exodus 31, starting in verse 16, says this. Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heavens and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And he gave to Moses, when he had finished speaking with him on Mount Sinai, the two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. And Father, I pray that we would receive what your word says. As you've said it is, it is your word written with your very finger. Lord, that we would not just see the fact that this is meant to have some kind of authority over us, but Lord, we would see your heart, your heart for your people, Lord, how you desire to dwell with them. Lord, how you desire to grow us as we have a holy fellowship with you. Father, please teach us what this means. Help us to understand, we pray. And we pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone who agrees says, amen. Amen. So what we're looking at is actually Moses finishing, receiving his instructions from God on Mount Sinai. We started this way back in chapter 25, if you remember. God had called Moses up onto the mountain. He had had showed himself on this mountain. There was all these kinds of crazy, like lightnings and thunders and earthquakes, and people were afraid to go up the mountain. And God had brought just a few of the representation of Israel up on the mountain, and he had allowed them to eat in his presence. He had, in a sense, said, as scary as I am, as holy as I am, what I really want with you is relationship. And then God had, had Moses come up to a place where it was shrouded in clouds. No one could see a place that was God's very presence. And he began to speak to Moses and say, Moses, this is what I want you to do. I want you to build a tabernacle, an ornate tent where I can be in the very midst of my people. And my people would know that I want to be with them. And we've been looking for several weeks about the details about this, about God's priesthood, about the tabernacle itself, about the different aspects. And so we come to this last study in these last two chapters about the tabernacle, and we're going to see even more about, about, yes, about the furnishings and about the details of the tabernacle, but more what God wants to do with it, what, what God's function is, what his will is, how, how it's meant to work. Because the truth is, is that God desires for us to grow in his presence. He desires for us to know him and to experience him in a holy way. Now, when I talk about experience, that makes some people nervous. We talk about experiencing God, it makes people nervous because they think, well, you, are you going to get into some weird stuff? Are you going to tell us to cut and speak in some weird language? Or are we going to shout up, shout and dance around? Or what's weird things going to happen? And some of you think, yes, experience, finally, Servant church is so chill and so conservative. Finally, some experience. 
But what we're talking about here is a holy experience. We're talking about God laying out for his people, this is what I want you to expect. Now, of course, we're looking in, in chapters 30 and 31, we're seeing how the tabernacle was, was what God wanted to do under the old covenant. And how the tabernacle, if you remember from studies past, how the tabernacle, the dwelling place, points forward to Jesus. And how now we enjoy God's presence through Jesus. If you remember, we read in John chapter 1, verse 14, where it says that the word became flesh. Speaking of Jesus, he became flesh and tabernacled among us. And so what we're going to see today is we're going to look at how, really three ways how God's dwelling place enables us to experience a holy closeness with God. Guess what he wants for us? God wants to have a holy closeness with us. So let's look at this. We're going to kind of bounce back and forth in these two chapters, but we're going to start in chapter 30, verse 1. Follow me as I read. God says to Moses, you shall make an altar on which to burn incense. You shall make it of acacia wood. A cubit shall be its length. A cubit shall be its breadth. It shall be square. And two cubits shall be its height. Its horn shall be of one piece with it. You shall overlay it with pure gold on its top and around its sides and on its horns. And you shall make the molding of gold around it. You shall make two golden rings from it. Under its molding on two opposite sides you shall make them. And you shall... Take, they shall be holders for poles which will carry. You shall make the poles of acacia wood, overlay them with gold, and listen, you shall put it in front of the veil that is above the ark of the testimony, in front of the mercy seat that is above the testimony, where I will meet with you. And there should be a diagram, a very crude graphic. And you can see there's a kind of a rectangle within a rectangle. The one inside, you might be able to see is is a place where the altar of incense is. Now, now I want you to recognize that the fact that God describes this as being overlaid with gold, gold being the most valuable metal they had, it corresponds with what was in that small, the small square within the small rectangle, the Holy of Holies. It's meant to be saying this is a really valuable piece. It's a really important part and I want it to be right next to the place, this Holy of Holies, right next to the Holy of Holies, so that you can, so that what happens with this altar, so what happens there is it, seen to be something that is important to me, something that where you're going to be close to where I am, even if you can't see me. And it's something here that, that is, that, that because it's so close to the Holy of Holies, it's, it's, it's talking about a use that's going to be limited to the high priest. Only the high priest will be able to go in there and do this. Only the priesthood, actually, will be able to go in there and do this. Now, now keep following me. Verse 7, what happens? And Aaron, that's the high priest, shall burn fragrant incense on it. Every morning when he dresses the lamps, uh, the lamps he shall burn it. And when uh, Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it. A regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it or, or a burnt offering or a grain offering. You shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall uh, make atonement on its horns once a year with the blood of the sin offering of atonement. He shall make atonement for it uh, once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord. Now, now what, what, here, here's what God's doing. He's saying, I want a place 
where there's going to be this really exclusive incense burned. And, and in this place where it's being burned, I want you to see this is going to be on an altar, but it's not an altar where sins are dealt with. It's not an altar where atonement is made. It's an altar, listen, it's an altar where atonement is enjoyed. It's a place where, because God has already made you right with him through the sacrifice, you get to enjoy his presence. Now, it's interesting, because the the author of the New Testament book, Hebrews, he compares Aaron and Aaron's priesthood with Jesus' priesthood. The fact that Jesus is also a high priest, not like Aaron, of a different priesthood, but still. Listen to what he says in in Hebrews chapter 7. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for him. Now, now this idea of incense, we're going to see in just a minute. Incense always cor- seems to always correspond with prayer. We'll see this in just a minute. So what we have here going on is this, an incense altar that's positioned for high priestly prayer. And it makes us think of what we just read in Hebrews, that Jesus, as our great high priest, prays for us. He prays for us. Anybody here struggle with prayer? You find it hard to do? Am I the only person? Hands are all there. Come on. It's, it, prayer can be difficult, can't it? It's a hard thing to do. There's a comfort for me that my prayers are not what make me right with God. It's what God provides through the sacrifice of Christ that makes me right with God. And that even when I don't pray well, I have a comfort that Jesus is praying for me. That I have a high priest who prays for me, who approaches God for me, in whom, in Christ, I am accepted to approach God because of his perfect prayers. Now, if we were to stop there and just say, okay, that's interesting. Well, we have a high priest. That's great. Again, Tapricum points to Jesus. We've heard the story before. If we stop there, we'd miss something. If you jump over to verse 34 of chapter 30 and see how God commands this incept to be worshiped, I hope it makes it even clearer to us. So the Lord says to Moses, take sweet spices. I'm not going to try to pronounce them. But he says, each in equal part, verse 35, and make an incense blended by the perfumer, as by the perfumer, uh, seasoned with salt, pure and holy. And you shall beat some of it very small and part of it, put part of it on, uh, uh, put part of it before the testimony in the tent of the meeting where I shall meet with you. It shall be most holy for you and the incense that you make according to its composition, you shall not make for yourselves. It shall be holy to the Lord. Whoever makes any like it to use as perfume shall be cut off from his people. Whoa. So God's commanding that this a special incense be made and that it be made for a very exclusive use and that you don't copy, you don't use it for something else. It's not as if like during the, the, the sort of worship time when sacrifices are being made, and, and think about this too, if all these animals are being brought forth and sacrifices are being made, it's a stinky place. And so if you were kind of 
just outside the tabernacle courtyard, and you could maybe smell the incense being burned coming through the holy place, you might go, oh, that's much better. Well, that's a nice smell. Well, that's, that's worshipful. I think I'll make that for my home. I'll make a scented candle. The incense of God. That's what I'll do. God says, absolutely not. You won't do this. Now, again, we, we want you to see that this idea of incense, that the scripture picks up this incense prayer connection. And, and it says it's not just for the high priest, it's for all people. Listen to this. In Luke chapter 1, here's what we read. The whole multitude of people were praying outside at the what? Hour of incense. Incense is being uh, burnt in the t- tabernacle or temple, and they're all praying at the same time. In the book of Revelation, we have a picture of these golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. So, so here's the picture between what we have in the tabernacle and what we have throughout the New Testament. It's this picture of what Jesus has always had the privilege of, communing with God, we now have the privilege of. We get to commune with God. The point is this. Prayer is holy because God is holy and his plans are holy. Prayer is holy. Listen, it's not about, prayer is not about the pleasure that we experience in coming before God. Listen, follow me with this. Prayer is not about our pleasure in asking, but it's about God's pleasure in hearing and answering according to his perfect will and timing. Now you might be saying, that does not really motivate me to pray. And that's why our prayers suffer. Because often our prayers are motivated by me. I want to smell the incense. I want it to be sweet. Lord, can we add a bit more cinnamon to my incense, please? I don't know what cassia is, but I don't like the smell of it. And we want things to be about us. But here's the irony. When it's about us, it's not actually about us and God anymore. It's only about us and God when it's about God. When we seek him in prayer. In fact, listen, this is kind of what Jesus is saying in John chapter 15. Jesus says to his disciples, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish. And it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified. Listen, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Do you see what Jesus is saying there? He's not saying your prayers can only be limited to that which, uh, that, that which that you know for sure make God's, makes God happier. You know for sure is God's will. That's impossible for us because we know that what makes God happy is that we believe, that we trust him. Without faith, it's impossible to please him, right? So God just wants us to trust him. But we also often don't know what God's will is, which is why we pray. God, what do you want to do here? What, 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 what should I be asking for? How do you want me to go? This is why we pray. And when Jesus is saying to his disciples, he's saying, listen, if you abide in me, in other words, you, you recognize that you live before God because of what I've done. I'm your great high priest. So you abide in me and my words, that is what I've revealed to you that my will is, if my words abide in you, then you can ask whatever you want because it's going to happen. And he even gives gives us a hint about what we should be asking for. He says, by this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. We should be saying, Lord, make me more fruitful. Lord, teach me to love more. 
Teach me to trust more. Teach me to be more like you. In the same context, of course, Jesus says, I'm the vine and you're the branches. Lord, help me just to stay close to you. He says, here's what happens. When you do that, because this is what Jesus has always done with the Father, when you learn to pray like this, here's what happens. Jesus says, my joy, the joy I've had for eternity with the Father will be in you. He says, and your joy will be full. Can I just confess something right now? I hope this doesn't make you guys look down on me, but I just want to be honest. I rarely have this kind of joy from my prayer life. And it's bugging me. It's really bothering me that I don't have as much joy as Jesus says I can have. It's bothering me. And, and, I, and I'm realizing as I'm doing this, part of this is because what, what God wants to cultivate in me is a holy prayer life. What he wants me to experience is what it means to be praying to him. Often I'm praying for joy. God, I want joy. I want to jump right to the fruit. I want to jump right to my, my experience. Instead of just saying, God, actually what I need is you. <laughs> what I need is that I need to abide in you, Lord Jesus. I need your words to abide in me. I need to, to be seeking what you have for me. And I want, I want the joy, Jesus, that you have. Because the Bible says it was for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, despising its shame. See, what we're seeing with, with this tabernacle is God showing, listen, what I'm wanting to do with this high priest and with this, 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 this incense, this altar of incense, is I want you to learn to worship me, not please yourself. Remember what Jesus says? He says, if you wish to find your life, what do you need to do? What, what do you need to do? Lose it. If you, seek to, if you seek to save your life, what happens? You lose it. If you want to find your life, you lose it. If you lose your life, you find it. When we say, Lord, it's not about me, it's about you, then guess what we find? We find the best that he has for us. This is a holy prayer life. See, the tabernacle was meant to facilitate a continuous and holy prayer God dictates what it's like. God dictates what it is. And why? Because he wants his people to experience him. We're going to see next week that often what we want is we want a God of our own understanding when we want to call that God Yahweh. And God's saying, no, no. I'm saying, I'm, I'm, I'm setting this up. I'm writing this with my finger so that you experience me. Now, go to verse 17 of chapter 30. Because the tabernacle is not just about facilitating this, excuse me, continuous and holy prayer. It's also about utilizing a cleansed and anointed priesthood. And you guys remember from a few weeks ago, when we talked about the priesthood here, that we are a kingdom of priests, aren't we? So when the Bible talks about the Old Testament priesthood, there's, there's a, a, a foreshadowing of us being his priests. Even Israel was called the kingdom of priests. So there's application for us here. So let's look at God's commands about this, this priesthood. First, they needed to be continually cleansed. Look at what it says in verse 17. The Lord says to Moses, you shall make a basin of bronze with its stand of bronze for washing and you shall put it between the tent of meeting and the altar. You can see it again. You should, there should be, I think, on the screen where, where that washing was. 
and you shall put water in it, and with Aaron and his sons you shall wash their hands and their feet, and they shall go into the tent of meeting, uh, uh, when they go into the tent of meeting, or when they come near the altar to minister, to burn a, a food offering to the Lord, they shall wash with water so that they may not die. They shall wash their hands and feet so that they may not die. It shall be a, a statute forever to them, even to him and his offspring throughout their generations. Now, the reality is, if you are sacrificing animals all day and you're dealing with animal guts and all kinds of disgusting things, it's probably a good idea to wash your hands. You, you could get some really deadly diseases, but this is, it's bigger than this. This is not just what God says. It's not just saying, be practical, wash your hands. There's something bigger here. What he's wanting his priests to recognize is that this regular washing is a prerequisite to service. The service isn't going to cleanse you. The washing cleanses you for the service. You need to be cleansed. It's interesting, too, that the washing was limited to hands and feet. Does this remind you of anything? Johnny, uh, John and I were talking a few weeks ago, and he said something to me that at the time I thought, oh, that's interesting, but I didn't really think much of it when I was studying this week. I thought, Johnny said this. He had said that he, when he was looking at John 13, he goes, it seems to me that John 13, where Jesus washes the disciples' feet, is like a commissioning service for their priesthood. I thought, oh, that's interesting. Then I read this this week, and I'm like, I think he's right. <laughs> There's something really good there. Because here's what we read in, in John chapter 13, right? When, when Peter says, Jesus, wash everything of me. The Lord says, the one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. See, the idea here is not kind of being cleansed positionally. We have that in Christ. It's being regularly cleansed. In fact, uh, when, when, when the Bible speaks of water that you use for washing, it connects that to the word. Water that we use for drinking is connected to the Holy Spirit. That's a different study. We'll, we'll come up to that later on. But water that's, that's used for washing is connected to God's word. Listen to Ephesians chapter 5. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. It's what, this reminds me of is how we are cleansed. The Bible says in 1 John 1, 9, here's how we maintain this fellowship with God as sinners with the Holy God. How do we remain, remain, uh, maintain fellowship? It says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Now, listen, this is how this connects. Because this continual cleansing that comes from the word of God, the word confess is a word that means to say the same thing as, or in this context, the same thing as God. So that means that when it comes to being cleansed from our sin, what God calls us to do is to say the same thing about our sin that God says. God says, I need to say, God, I confess this sin makes me worthy of judgment. I confess it. I confess when I don't do this good thing, it makes me worthy of judgment. I confess when I do this bad thing, it makes me worthy of judgment. But I also confess Christ died for this. So that I could be washed clean and learn to walk anew. The need for continual cleansing. Could it be that one of the reasons that you're struggling in your service is because you're struggling in your cleansing? You're not actually believing. You're not, you're not confessing the same things that God says about you. Maybe you're trying to downplay your sin. Well, yeah, okay, I mess up sometimes, but it's usually because those people do this to me. 
Or maybe it's like, okay, yes, Lord, I'm so bad. I'm so wretched. I have no right to ever serve. I keep failing every day. I fail so much. Wait a second. Christ died for that. Confess that too. Are you following me? It's like God wants his priesthood to recognize, look, you need continual cleansing. And guess what I've provided? A place of continual cleansing in this bronze laver. But also, they need an exclusive anointing. Look at verse 22. The Lord says to Moses, I want you to take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels of, of sweet-smelling uh, sweet cinnamon, half as much, uh, that is 250, and 250 of aromatic cane, and 500 of cassia, and so on and so forth. And I want you to blend this, verse 25, and I want you to make a sacred anointing oil blended as by a perfumer. It shall be an anoint, a holy anointing oil. Then from verses 26 to 28, he talks about how everything connected to the tabernacle needs to be anointed. Anointing just simply means to smear with oil. And he says in verse 29, you shall consecrate them that they may be, that is all these parts of the tabernacle, they may be most holy. Notice, whatever touches them will become holy. Now, listen. What God is saying is this holy anointing oil makes everything in the tabernacle holy. And it makes everyone who uses these in the tabernacle holy. Now, now think about this for a second. What God is saying is, he's saying, listen, I want you to create something that I declare makes them holy, sets them apart for me. That's what holy means, to be set apart for God. So look at verse 30. He says, you shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them, set them apart, that they may serve me as priests, and you shall say to the people of Israel, this shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generations. It shall not be poured on the body of an ordinary person. And you shall make no other like it in its composition. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. Whoever compounds anything like it, or whoever puts any, any of it on an outsider, shall be cut off from his people. So like the incense is only for the worship that God says it's for, the anointing oil is only for anointing as God says it is. Only for those whom he determines are to be anointed. Now this is important. Because what, what God's wanting to stress here is that this anointing is exclusive. The oil that's, that's, that's the, 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 I can't talk. The oil that's designed by God is meant to be for the purposes of a God. In fact, this is really the idea of holy. It's a good illustration of what, what it means to be holy. It means you're set apart for an exclusive use, for God's exclusive use. Now again, this makes us a little bit uncomfortable because we don't want to be anybody's exclusive anything. We want them to be our exclusive something, but we, want, we don't want to be anybody's exclusive anything. That's how we are. And yet God says, look, when I call, when I anoint my work and my people, I do so say, this is just for me. Now, again, in this context, we're seeing that, that God says really plainly, look, no ordinary person gets the anointing. Fast forward to the New Testament, guess what? Every Jesus follower gets anointed. Listen to this in 1 John chapter 2. You have been anointed by the Holy One and you have all knowledge, John writes, 
No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. I write these things uh, about, I write these things to you about those who, tr- who are trying to deceive you, but the anointing that you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, and it is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, in that context, in 1 John 2, every, every person who takes the Bible seriously believes this is talking about the Holy Spirit. That the anointing that we receive is God's very Spirit dwelling in us because of what Christ has done. Notice it says in the first part that we read, you have been anointed by the Holy One. The Holy One is Jesus. When, when, it, when we see this picture of Jesus anointing, our great high priest anointing us to make us holy, to make us set apart for God's use. When he does this, he does this not by just doing some kind of weird force thing on us. He didn't just kind of like give us the, the force like in some Star Wars sense. He doesn't just do this by, by kind of zapping us with, with, with some kind of celestial oil that we feel some tingly thing. What he does is he comes and says, I've made you holy so that, listen, my Holy Spirit can dwell in you. You become the tabernacle. See, our service is made holy because the Holy One, Jesus, cleanses us and anoints us with his Spirit. Now, we're, Lord willing, we're pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that the next thing we're gonna teach after Exodus is 1 Corinthians. And that'll be a great time of challenge for all of you. Some of you come from churches that are not charismatic. You don't know, you might not even know what that word means. You don't believe that the supernatural stuff actually happens anymore. And yet, we're gonna see in 1 Corinthians, it very much still happens. Some of you come from charismatic churches that, that practice certain things that we're going to show biblically, that was actually not right. And you're going to be challenged. I, the hope is everyone will hate me by the end of that, <laughs> end of that step. No, in all seriousness, the hope is that all of us would recognize that God anoints us with his Holy Spirit to make much of Jesus. That we would recognize that this is why God has chosen to take residence up among his people is to make much of Jesus. What the tabernacle points to is this. We need continual cleansing and we need an exclusive anointing. It's exclusive because it comes from Jesus and it's exclusive because it's about Jesus. This is what it points to. Now, lastly, what is the, how does the tabernacle function? What's God's will for this? It identifies a valued and useful people Go back to chapter 30, verse 11. Chapter 30, verse 11. The Lord said to Moses, when you take the census of the people of Israel, then each shall give a ransom for his life to the Lord when you number them, that there be no plague among them when you number them. There's some weird stuff in the Bible. This is weird, isn't it? It sounds weird. Each one who is numbered in the census shall give this half a shekel according to the shekel of the sanctuary. The shekel is 20 geras, in case you wanted to know. Half a shekel as an offering to the Lord. Everyone who is numbered in the census 
from 20 years old and upward shall give the Lord's offering. Notice, the rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give less than half a shekel. And when you give the Lord's offering to make atonement for your lives. What's this about? What's this ransom money about? First of all, just know this, this is not God's standard for giving. It's not. And, and I, this is really important because this is a really important thing. In the New Testament, the Bible teaches really clearly, you can read this in 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 16, where the giving was meant to be proportionate. You give out of what you have. I mean, think of this way. If, if you make 30 grand a year and God says, uh, God says, I want you to give 3,000 a year, it's like, okay, that's costly, but I think we can do that. But if you make 10 grand a year and God says, I want you to give 3,000 a year, you're going, I don't think I can do that. Well, God's not asking you to do that, so that's good news. That's not the standard of giving here. This is a ransom money. And it's interesting because the word ransom there, it's connected to the word atonement. They're all kind of the same basic word of this idea of covering, this idea of God providing a way for us to be right with him. Now, I think it's really important for us to recognize is that God is not calling us to buy his forgiveness. God, please forgive me. Sure, that'll be 20 shekels, please. What he's doing here is he's calling, he's calling his people to humbly acknowledge God as their resource. He says, when you take a census, make sure there's no plague. Now, if you guys know your Bibles, you know, if you read in, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, David decided to take a census, and when David takes a census, God's angry. And he's angry because what's implied is that David has taken a census thinking how many, because the 20-year-olds here, this would be the, 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 the age of military involvement. So we're going to take a census and see what kind of military might we have as Israel. How strong are we as Israel? God says that's very dangerous. Because when you start trusting in your own resource instead of me as the source, that's very dangerous. So God says as a way to keep, keep you humble about this, as a way to remind you that you, you that I am your, your strength. He says, here's what I want you to do and take a census. But also look at verse 16. He says, you shall take the atonement money from the people of Israel and you shall give it uh, for service for the tent of meeting that it may bring people, the people of Israel to the remembrance before the Lord so as to make atonement for their lives. So what this was, was it was a way to say, not again buying God's atonement, but partnering with the God, the God who ransomed them, who redeemed them, who provided atonement for them. Because this money was meant to go to the tabernacle to keep it maintained. Now, now listen, the, again, the New Testament takes this idea of ransom and pulls it forth. This is one of our, uh, our is, in a sense, is our main verse for our church in Mark 10, uh, 45. But look at a couple of verses before it. Jesus says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus is saying to his disciples, when they're going, who's going to be the greatest? You know, when, when Jesus brings in his, the God's kingdom and it's full, who's going to be the greatest? Peter's like, I'm the greatest. I, I talk the most. So obviously, I'm the greatest. You know, John's like, I'm the greatest. No, I'm Son of thunder, man. I'll take anybody. I'm the greatest, you know. You got Simon the Zealot going, oh, I'm the greatest. I'm the one who's the warrior. You got Matthew going, I got, I got all your money. I'm the greatest. I'm the tax collector. And they're all arguing about who's going to be the greatest. And he's saying, no, you want to be great? Be a servant. Because even I came to serve. 
I came to give myself as a ransom for many. In other words, he's saying, listen, you want to be great? Then serve like I did to ransom you. God's saying in the Old Testament, tabernacle, you, 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 want, to see, you want to be involved in this? Then here's what I'm calling you to do. I'm calling you to give a ransom money that shows that you are equally needy and equally redeemed by me. That you join me in this to demonstrate this. Peter writes it this way in 1 Peter chapter 1. He says, Know that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, like in the Old Testament, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This is your ransom money. So this is, this is God basically saying to them, listen, not I want your money, but I want you to know your value. That you're valuable enough to me that I would make sure that you're ransomed, that you're atoned for, that you're redeemed. And I want you to, to, to partner with me in that. I want you to put your money where your mouth is and say, yep, I believe this. Now, go to verse 31, or chapter 31, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bez, Bezalel. I don't know. It's a, it's a name for your next baby. <laughs> the son of Uri, the son of Hur, the, of the tribe of, of Judah. I have filled him with the spirit of God, with ability and intelligence and knowledge and all craftsmanship. This is the first time that phrase, filled with the spirit of God, is used. Now, being full of the Spirit of God or filled with the Spirit has been used in other places, but this way it's used right here. And what's interesting is he uses this phrase in context of people doing things that don't seem very supernatural. They're craftsmen. In fact, what you have happening here is you see God's Spirit who created everything. In fact, the, the, this, this a similar phrase is used in the very beginning of Genesis. When it talks about the spirit hovering over the, the face of the earth. God's spirit being involved in the creation of the whole universe. In a sense here, what God's saying to Moses is, Moses, I've chosen this guy and the other guys he's going to talk about. And I've filled them with my creative spirit so that they can be empowered as creative people to do my will. In fact, look what he says in verse 4. He says they're, they're created or, or they've been filled with the Spirit to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting, or in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him Ahoyliab, the son of Ishamach of the tribe of Dan. And I have given, notice, I have given to all able men ability. Now, when we get into 1 Corinthians, we're going to get into what it means to be filled with the Spirit. We're going to talk about the distinction between having gifts of the Spirit and walking in those gifts in the power of the Spirit. We'll get into those nuances. But today, here's what I want you to see, more importantly. I want you to see, first and foremost, that God fills people with His Spirit. He anoints His people with His Spirit to do things that we think are mundane and normal. That we need God's Spirit to even do those things to His glory. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. But also, here's what I want you to notice, okay? He says really plainly that he gives, God gives, all able men abilities. Now, 
it's in vogue for us to say, oh, I, I don't really have any abilities. I'm not really good at anything. And actually what we mean by that is usually, I'm not the best at something. I don't know when we got into this in our heads that we're only good at something if we're the best at it or better than most at it. It doesn't make any sense, but this is how we think. No, if you have the ability to do anything, anything that you can do that can bless somebody else is a God-given ability. And you should give him thanks for it, and you should look to utilize it. In fact, listen to what Paul says in Corinthians he says, none of you should be puffed up in favor of one against another. Oh, I wish I had their gift. Or I, I think my gift is more important than their gift, whatever, however it manifests itself. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have? Notice that you did not receive. And if, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you've not received it? What ability has God given you? Well, abilities, plural, has God given you? He gave them to you for a reason. He gave them to you to be a benefit to other people. See, here, here's what the tabernacle does. Here's what it means for us to dwell with the tabernacle. That is, in our case, New Testament case, to dwell with Jesus. What he does is as we dwell with him, as we walk with him, as we walk with his people, our gifts get identified and we become useful. Some of you guys were around when we did the One Another series at the beginning of 2022. And we did that one another series. We, we made the point that, listen, you don't identify your gifts and then serve. You serve to identify your gifts. You find out what you're good at by just serving. Because it's interesting. Every sort of gift of the Spirit that's listed in the New Testament, there's a corresponding one another command. Now, now what God's wanting his people to do is, is to recognize, listen, there's a reason he's telling to Moses. Moses, there's a reason I've called these guys by name and given them the abilities I've given them. Look at verse 6 of chapter 31. He says, And I have given all able men ability, notice, that they may make all that I have commanded you. And then he lists everything in the tabernacle. Everything. He says in verse 11, And even the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place, even those things I've given them the gift of this, according to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. God says, I've given them these gifts to do what I want them to do with them. As someone said many times, the gifts, of the, Spirit, the gifts of the Spirit are not toys, they're tools. In fact, this is why, listen to this again, 1 Corinthians, Paul says, if all prophesy, just one of the gifts, but it's a very important one. If all prophesy and an unbeliever outsider enters, he, will be, he is convicted by all, he is called to account by all, the secrets of his hearts are disclosed, and so falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. This is talking specifically about prophecy, but applying this to how God the Spirit enables God's people to use whatever abilities they have when we Say, God, use me as ever you want, however you want to use me. You know what happens? Then collectively, us and even unbelievers in our midst say, man, surely God is in this place. And I hope if any of you guys are here who don't yet believe in Jesus, I hope that you sense God is in this place by how you see people serve each other and love each other and use their gifts to help each other. 
You see, we use what God gives us according to what God says to benefit those God loves. This is what happens in the tabernacle. This is what happens when the people of Jesus gather in Jesus' name to do Jesus' work. This is what's being echoed forward from the tabernacle. Lastly, verse 12 of chapter 31. And the Lord said to Moses. Now that phrase, and the Lord said to Moses, is used seven times in chapters 25 to 31. And there's a hint there. Not every number in the Bible is significant, but when you see something happening seven times, that often is something that's important. It's like God saying, here's where it all gets summed up. Here's where the big important thing happens. And he makes it really explicit. Look at verse 13. He says, you are to speak to my people, God says to Moses, Yours to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths. For this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Here does any work on it. That soul shall be cut off from among his people. Six days shall, be, uh, shall work be done. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest Holy to the Lord, whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall be put to death. Man, that's not happy news. <laughs> but it's important. God's saying, listen. You remember, he's been talking for these six chapters about the tabernacle. He's saying, listen, as, as important as the sacred space is, the sacred space of the tabernacle, as important as the sacred space is, even more important is the sacred space. Time. Time set apart for God. It's almost as if God's saying, listen, I'm giving, Moses, I'm giving you a lot of instructions. There's a lot of work that's going to be done to get this tabernacle put together. But more important than all this work that needs to be done is that my people learn to find rest in me. More important than any work in or for this sacred space was remembering God's holy rest. Again, I wonder if this is why we struggle in our service. Because we struggle to rest. We struggle to find rest. Rest in, an, in, in, in our context, in the New Testament context, isn't about just not working. Rest is, is about trusting. You may have heard the story of a missionary, I can't remember where, where they were, but they were trying to get, put the New Testament into the, the, the native language. And it hadn't been done there before. And they, they kept trying to find what the word would be for faith. And they couldn't figure out what the word for faith would be in this native language. And so as they're talking to the natives and trying to figure out what it is, the native said, oh, I know what you mean, I know what you mean. And, and then he showed them. He says, oh, what you're looking for is this. And, he's, and, and he's, the missionary sits down and puts all his weight on this chair. And, the, and, and then the, the native person says, oh, that word is whatever the word was. And that became the word for faith. Putting your whole weight onto something. That's rest. When you lay down at night, you lay down on your bed, what do you do? You put all your weight on that place. This is where I'm going to rest. And God's like saying, listen, with the Sabbath, 
The way I want you to be identified is I want you to be identified as those people who have been redeemed for rest. In fact, what does he say? Notice in verse 16, he says, Therefore, the people of Israel shall keep the Sabbath, observing the Sabbath throughout their generations as a covenant forever. It is a sign forever between me and the people of Israel that in six days the Lord made heavens and earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. So God's like saying, listen, the reason the Sabbath rest is so important is because I want these people to remember I'm the one who created you and I'm the one who redeemed you for rest. When God created the, the whole earth and he puts Adam and Eve in the garden, before there was any sin, they worked. And he said to them, six days you work, but the seventh day you rest because I'm resting. I want you to be able to see there's a connection between me making you and me redeeming you for rest. This is what should identify us. Are we a valued people? Does God value us? Yes. He tells us, listen, you can trust me so much, you can take a day off. That might not seem like that big of a deal to you, but I'll tell you what, for thousands of years, it was a huge deal. Most people didn't get a day off. In the Roman Empire, slaves only got one day off in 10. And, and that was, they could revoke that at any time. It was only the scriptures that taught this, this day of rest. Why? Because this is the kind of God who redeems us. See, we're identified as his holy people as we serve for the benefit of God's people and even more so as we learn to rest in his provision. This is God's will for the tabernacle. This is the holy experience that God wants us to pursue when we gather together. This is the God that wants you to know him. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would indeed help us to know you in truth. Lord, we thank you that in, in commanding Moses to have your people put together this tabernacle, this place where you would dwell among your people, you know, not only do you, do you point back to your original plan of wanting to be with those that you've made, wanting relationship, but you point forward, Lord, to a place and a time when we will dwell together with you forever. You are making us ready for that time. Father, help us to be those that pursue your will, to pursue your holy experience for us. Lord, we don't want to be satisfied with just knowing. We don't want to just know information. We want to experience you in truth. So we pray for that, Lord. And I pray for anyone here who doesn't know you, Lord. I know this message was uh, hard to understand for someone who's been a Christian for years and for someone who's not a Christian, I bet this is just weird. But I pray even in that, Lord, you would graciously, by your spirit, bring them to yourself. That they would know that you're a God that's real and that loves those that he's made and as those that he's redeemed. Please, Lord, we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Everyone who agrees says, amen. All right. God bless you guys. Thanks so much for coming. Sorry I went a bit long today.